2: Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children.
3: You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor.
2: I am so angry, not just for myself, but for the thousands of people, or even millions of people, who are fobbed off, who've gone through trauma, and their trauma hasn't been addressed and they end up in the ground through suicide or they become homeless or they end up in jail. They have been let down because I think society is just too scared to, to deal with traumatised children.
3: Welcome to today's episode of Justice. Um, today we have Dolly Sen on the pod. Welcome Dolly.
2: My name is Dolly Sen. I'm originally a Londoner but I live in Great Yarmouth and I'm a writer, filmmaker artist, troublemaker. um, And sometimes I do adult work like at mental health research and teaching and training.
3: And I met you, Dolly, at a MIND conference, I think it was, wasn't it? it In
2: Uh, Camden? Yeah, it was a uh, MIND in Camden conference. And I think it it was actually at the Welcome. I could be wrong. I think it was about 10 years ago, maybe
3: 15 years well, I, ago. Well, I'll take
2: your word for it. because uh, <laughs> I don't, I, I, Like I said, I, I don't understand time. Nobody really ex- properly explained it to me. No.
3: Yeah. But I remember sitting in the audience. I didn't know you at that time. And you were the first person that I'd ever listened to talk about schizophrenia, why you felt that you'd ended up with this sort of label, with this diagnosis, with these sort of patterns of behavior. And I remember being absolutely blown away. And I think you still remain the only person that I've ever listened to talk so sort of clearly and articulately about sort of what happened to you. Um, so I was keen to sort of get you on today to explore all of that a bit more okay i guess my first question really is where did it all start when did you first start realizing that sort of things were different for you
2: okay well um i've not had an easy upbringing not easy childhood um it was quite a traumatic home life but i did love school you know school was my sanctuary and i um, i loved writing and reading and stuff like that so although i had a quite troubled um childhood i i kind of threw myself into my schoolwork and things started to change around about 13 i think i guess a lot of things happened i my thyroid became underactive which is known now to be one of a possible trigger for psychosis really uh, and it was underactive underactive yeah yeah okay um in fact there there has been a few studies that say that you should always test, especially women who've come into the psychic psychiatric system, their thyroid levels. It is quite a while ago I read this report. So it was but it was something like three quarters of women have something up with their thyroid. So it's it has a definite impact. Okay. I also had glandular fever around that time. So I've kind of physically run down. And my sanctuary, which was schools, stopped being a sanctuary by having to deal with bullies. So I had really nowhere for my 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 you know my mind to rest because it was being traumatized wherever it looks really um and then I kind of um the kind of I think the final trigger was that my dad tried to strangle me and not long after I just found myself I I knew I was becoming withdrawn and depressed. That that much was obvious to me. But um I was a straight A student and my grades were going down to B's and C's and D's and I didn't want to go out anymore. Um, so that was the kind of the the precursor to actually having hearing voices and and seeing things. When I was fourteen, and I did this thing, and you know, many young people now won't understand what this strange thing was. But I used to have a tape deck and listen to the uh, top thirty every Sunday and record um, the does top. That,
3: th- does that make me old? Because I remember what a tape <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, huh? I'm afraid it does. <laughs> well, so the younger generation who might be listening, we had things called tape cassettes. Yes. That we'd put into machines and listen to music. Yes, so. we,
2: um, yeah, we had to kind of, um, basically the idea was to press record and play on this tape deck when your favourite song came on and you didn't want to get the um, DJ's voice into into the some but
3: the timing I, was everything yeah timing I remember was... it so well <laughs> <take me back.
2: laughs> yes yeah, so that, that that was you know that was the um when i was doing that and then suddenly i heard a voice that wasn't um part of the radio um, program and i thought it was must be you know like uh, another channel kind of invading and i unplugged the radio but i could still hear this voice and it only lasted just a couple of minutes and i wasn't really sure what to make of it um it unsettled me but like, but like i said i wasn't sure what to make of it but the next day the voice came back and that voice really hasn't basically hasn't left me since um when
3: it came back was it again through the cassette or was it just happening no it was randomly? just like there was.
2: it was just like it uh, um a disembodied voice in the room can and you it,
3: describe it, the voice yes it was it was.
2: sounded very dem- demonic like very gravelly and very deep and it did say it was it it'd say it was it, it was a, a demon, and it's it it was just saying stuff like um, you have to you, you have to kill yourself because if you don't kill yourself your brothers and sisters would die, um, and you know when you're that age and you don't understand what psychosis is and stuff like that it, you believe that you're hearing a demon speaking to you, and that was that the kind of first full day of hearing voices, and then in the next few days after that I began to help, to have visual things. First of all, it was just shadows kind of intruding uh, my eye line, but then it became um full demonic faces kind uh, coming out of walls and um in mirrors and stuff like that and also, I can't remember what kind of um disaster was happening at the time, but uh there was a disaster on the on the t v news and the voices were saying I was responsible for it and then i i got it got a sense that the the reporters were saying I was responsible for it. So it was now I was being told by this demon that I should kill myself. And I really thought to save my my um, siblings, that's what I had to do. So a week after I started to hear voices, I attempted suicide for the first time. And you were uh, 14 when I was 14, but I had that kind of home life. I couldn't go to my parents to talk to them about either the, um, the voices um, I mean, my mother was my mother was deaf and quite, you know, in denial about the home situation anyway, um, and quite and she was more um, more dependent on me than I was on her, you know, emotionally dependent on me. And I felt I couldn't go to her. And my dad was, you know, the abusive one in the in the family, so I couldn't go to him. So I, I didn't tell them about the voices, and I didn't tell them. I, I took some of my dad's medication. Um, obviously um, wasn't enough. And um, and that's what happened. And then after that, I stopped going to school altogether. And even, you know, despite many beatings from my dad, I still was more scared of the demons than of my dad. And so I refused to go to school. And in that way, uh, social services became involved because I refused to go to school.
3: And can I quickly ask about your siblings? Where yeah. where do you rank in the siblings? I'm the eldest sort of, of
2: five. Right. Um so I was the oldest and I I felt I was their, their protector as well. Right. So yeah, um you So know, sorry,
3: you were saying that social services were called. Yeah, they
2: they were they were called and they Yeah, they basically tried to bully me back into school, saying that I was being lazy and that I should pull my socks up, which is a phrase I, I keep hearing. I really don't understand this you know obsession with socks and mental health. <laughs> it's I, I can't make the the connection. Where is life. it? Yeah, and um
3: and, and they presumably knew about your home life.
2: Well, yeah, I've been I was part of you know I, I had social services involvement throughout my whole life. You know, yeah, I, I, I was taken out of the home environment a couple of times. Or into care. Uh, into care, but I, I I was quite young. I, was, I I think my baby, my brother was a baby, so that would make me four or five. And I don't remember how long for And I've been trying to get my social service record, but funnily enough, it's disappeared. So I, I don't know how long I was in care for, but with my sister. But um, is it
3: important for you to know?
2: I want to know. About. Yeah, I want to know what they thought was happening in the family and what, what they what they were going to do about it, because they didn't protect, you know, social service didn't protect me or my brothers and sisters. So I couldn't understand why they were there, there except to tell me off for not doing things. You yeah, know, that's what was my perception as a young person.
3: Mm. And the sounds and the voices, did they ever match up with the face? Or was it sort of one thing? Or was it two separate entities?
2: There was multiple entities. I mean, the, the, that one voice became many soon after. But I, I never wanted to put a face to it. It just made it, it felt like it made it more real. And it's only recently that I can kind of say, yes, these voices are connected to this, this experience. And But it's not, it's not a straightforward thing because psychosis likes to work in kind of um, indirectly and in metaphor. So it was only when, you know, you know if, I'll give an example when I teach about thinking I was Jesus, and that's later on in my life. But when I say to people, I know now when I have those those thoughts, it's because I'm feeling powerless in my life because Jesus is a powerful figure. So that's that's the connection with that. And the voices I heard were, you know, mostly um, abusive, telling me that I I wasn't um, worth anything. I should be dead. You know, nobody cares. And those were the things said by my abusers. So the voices didn't sound like my abusers, but they used the words of my abusers.
3: Right. And so how old were you when you got the diagnosis or what was the sort of passage of time between sort of going to school and the social services are involved and you're checking out of school sort of mentally? Um, At what point did they give you a diagnosis?
2: I I don't know what my first diagnosis was because I was still a child. Social services arranged uh, an appointment with a child psychiatrist at King's College Hospital in South London. And I went there, and I should have known better, because I was waiting in the waiting room with my mum, and a, 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 I think a 12 or 13-year-old um, girl came out crying, I should have known, should have gone in there. But she was a horrible woman, this um, child psychiatrist, and she said to me, the first thing she said to me, she didn't even make eye contact with me, she said, what's wrong with you then? And I wanted, you know, I was so desperate to talk about my experience as someone, and I just realised. Can't talk to her about it, um, and she, yeah, she ruined it. If I, I think if I had had a more positive uh, con- um, connection with somebody at that time, my my road, my life route would have taken a different direction. But what did I learn from that? I learned not to trust people and not to trust professionals. Thanks to her, so um, she did diagnosed me, but I don't know what of, because I was, you know, 14. And I, funnily enough, can't access those records either. So who was the
3: first person you opened up to and told about the voices and the hallucinations?
2: Um, Well, with this first psychiatrist, I only skirted around it. I wasn't entirely truthful with her because I didn't want to have anything to do with her. I wanted to get out of that room very quickly. Um, Basically, from, you know, 14 to... 17 i just literally just sat in my room doing nothing because i was too scared to leave my room basically but around about 17 the voices stopped for a little while they stopped for about a year or so do you know why no i've got no idea to this day um and i was able to kind of go back to like night school to get a couple of gcses and stuff like that and then they, they resumed again and my my kind of upbringing was like you don't tell the outside world anything you don't tell anyone anything and i took that to heart and even though i was going through hell i told nobody actually until i was 21 uh, uh, uh about what was really going on
3: and who who was that
2: um it was my G- gp at the time
3: so you saw this psychiatrist lost your faith in professional yes and then was the next time you had contact with the sort of medical world when you were 21 yes GP. okay yes
2: i mean no, people were trying to you know, forced me to do all sorts of stuff, like go back to school and... and put your socks a, up and, and go pull, for a walk. Yeah, exactly. Have a <laughs> Get bath. Get some fresh air. Have a cup some, of tea. Light a candle. <laughs> yeah, light a candle. Um, none of them worked. <laughs> funny enough, you don't read that stuff in actual... Um, uh, the books that you have to do your training with. It's <laughs> Those things aren't in the treatment section, so no. it's a funny thing.
3: So tell me about that GP and why they were different. Well, I was just
2: getting desperate. Um, my mum said she was unable to cope with me, and I was becoming quite uh, I was very paranoid. I was becoming paranoid for my brothers and sisters and I would I would tell them to F off and you know that I would excuse them of trying to hurt me and they were becoming scared of me and I could see that. Mm. So I think I that that um that was the kind of trigger to go and ask for help. Um so I said to the GP, I I really can't cope with my mental health anymore that um, I want to kill myself because I don't know what to do next. And he said, well, I, um, I'm going to put you on antidepressants. And he put me on antidepressants, nothing really changed. Um, he put me on a different antidepressant, nothing really changed. Did he
3: ever ask you what was going on in your life or what might have happened? No, no, no okay. he so Lots a, of drugs,
2: lots of drugs. Um, and then he added an, an antipsychotic into the mix. And all that did was make me feel very tired and more disconnected from myself. And it was nothing was really um, improving. And then when I was 22, it kind of things came to a head and I tried to jump out. I mean, the family lived in a third floor flat and I tried to jump out the window and my mum pulled me and my brother pulled me back in. And my mum said, "You, you, you have to do something about it. Um, so I went back to the GP and, and told him what had happened. He said, OK, I'm referring you to our local um, community mental health team. And then I had six weeks of counselling and they did ask me what was happening in, in my family life. But what I remember of that, and this is over 20 years ago, is that I just felt like um, I did, didn't really want to, want to deal with that aspect. What the home life aspect. The home life a- a- aspect.
3: And do you think why? Because it's too difficult to listen to? Or do you think they're just like, oh, gosh, another person with so many problems? Why do you think they didn't want to ask? Do you think it's training?
2: I think, think it's partly to do with training because otherwise... Um, we. um I mean, they told you it's a medical thing and it's all to do with what what's happening in the brain. Um And they can't really... I think they're too scared to look beyond that because, you know... It might might ask them to be a bit more human, which, you know, seems to be a difficult thing for some professionals. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I just told them what was happening, this particular nurse, what was happening. And he, he just he said that I was overgeneralizing my feelings, that I was kind of projecting, because I wasn't trust. I mean, I had no point in my in life be- before then where I learned to trust people. So where uh, I didn't trust people. So he said I was over and and tiring everyone with the same brush, but I didn't know how to do it, you know, Any otherwise. And it was all like I was... Um, he was individualising everything and kind of putting all the responsibility back onto my lap. Right. Uh, so uh, like what, well, you
3: should have dealt with it differently? Yes, or... yes.
2: Uh, and then... Um, not long after that I had my first um, hospital stay and again that the the same thing happened I I said to the psychiatrist and I remember this very vividly um, I need some help with my housing I need to be taken out of the housing situation family situation and have help with my housing and the psychiatrist said that's not my job I'm not a social worker and I said well can you refer me to a social worker we don't do that here Wow. we'll just give you meds to cut to take the edge off that's what i remember him saying oh. yeah and when you
3: say hospital stay is that what we know is someone being sectioned under the was mental A- health act
2: or not it's similar i mean i wasn't sectioned the first time um i, I, well, I had sections after that but the first time I, yeah like i knew i i was unsafe around my family and myself so mm. i i uh, agreed with my um, psychiatric nurse that i needed to be in hospital um yeah and you i was told by the psychiatrist who assessed me that it would be a, a, a you a know, peaceful sanctuary and when i went in it well, was the
3: hospital a, yes right
2: i was so naive and there was literally flying chairs as i entered the ward. um you know i said you yeah, this sanctuary where is it <laughs>
3: yeah this doesn't look very peaceful no
2: so yeah it It's very hard to be light all the time, really, um, especially when you're that vulnerable. You're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
3: when you say that you knew that you were sort of becoming a danger to the people around you, I'm just interested to know if you can articulate what that feels like. So it was almost like a mind body split. You knew that you were being scary to people. Mm. Did you want to be or not? Did, I'm just trying to work out well, like, for you what
2: that sort it of felt does, like. Was yeah, it-, it just felt like a war really, because I was having voices tell me that I should kill my dad. Um, I mean, the reason I was, Asked to go into hospital, I think if I had said no, I would have been sectioned. I had a knife and I was ready to attack my dad, so that's that was the, the trigger for that my first hospital stay. Yeah,
3: and they knew he was abusing you. Yes. Had at any point was that addressed by anyone?
2: No. So yeah, so I I, it, I just felt like I was being torn. My, my my just not my brain, my heart was being torn in all directions. That um I had this. This kind of compulsive voice telling me, to, like, I, like, "This was the only way to save myself and save my family was to kill my dad," and um, and then, but I, at the same time, didn't want to do, you know, physically do that, and it was, you know, do I? I don't. I like, do I? And it, it's almost like you're you're because you're going. You don't know whether to go forward or backward. You're you're just stuck. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think um, my dad. Um, had spat on me, and I thought that was the last straw. That kind of that to in and fro in kind of said, Okay, let's do it. Um, but, um, luckily or unlucky, well, yeah, luckily, um, I had an appointment to see uh, my, my psychiatric nurse that day and, um, told him what I was going to do. And so he said, I think you need to go into hospital.
3: And still no one did anything about your father and they knew.
2: I mean, I have gone to appointments with uh, bruises on my face. Um, And they don't even ask why. Why? Why?
3: And they don't ask why, but I ask why a lot. So what do you think it is? Do you think it is just people feeling overwhelmed? I mean, not that that's, you know, okay. I just don't understand if a child is coming across the services and the services are sitting there going right clearly this child is being abused um whether physically mentally emotionally sexually or all of the above <sighs> ah <laughs> Do you are you any more aware now that you know now that you're older what what it might have been why they just put it all around on you and it's like right well it's up to you to get better don't worry about why you're
2: like this I yeah. would love to know what i mean I, I have had professional training myself i mean i i wanted to be an occupational therapist and i realized it wasn't for me because i realized i've just caused too much trouble in the nhs <laughs> so um <laughs> but i've had the, maybe they need it yeah and i had, and i've had the training and now i realize and I mean, i'll give you an example on one of my placements i was put in a um, cmht a community mental health team and their, their kind of perception of the people they worked with was, was horrific. One, one nurse said, oh, you the only thing you can do with women with personality disorder is drop a chair on their head. Oh, wow. Um, and I actually reported that. And because I reported that, nobody spoke to me in that office. Wow. And, I, and that's what I mean. I think you're kind of, you're almost bullied into behaving in that horrible way. You know, or you lose your job. Or you don't want to work there. It's. Uh, I mean, the good people leave.
3: Mm.
2: Most of the good people leave. Some, i you know, have got the strength of will to stay and keep fighting. But most good, most of the good ones leave. And I'm, and I remember being on a um, a morning meeting, and they were talking about another patient with, with a woman with personality disorder, Um and um, she was in crisis because she had just been raped because she was. She, she had problems with alcohol so she was um while well, she was unconscious she was raped and then we're making fun of her and i just was so shocked and i said right. and yeah that was one of the th- reasons I, I i don't want to, to work in this system yeah i i would i would either break down myself or or i would you know i, don't, I would." I'd get sacked very quickly
3: and
0: yeah. yeah. end up doing something
3: that probably wouldn't be a good idea. Yeah. So so what diagnoses were you given over your, over your life so far? What okay, have you, I've I've been slapped with.
2: The first one was um psychotic depression. Right. I've okay. had um um uh schizophrenia, paranoid yeah. schizophrenia, and because I wanted to uh, This was when i get creative i get quite high and i met with a different psychiatrist and this seems to me that you know if you meet a different psychiatrist you get a different diagnosis like they have their pet diagnoses and um just because i said i wanted to go to london zoo and rescue all the animals and take them for a trip around london they thought (laughs) i was bipolar i mean just that those few words i'd say yeah ambitious yeah (laughs) Well, yeah. They, well, that is—it's a very ambitious thing, yeah. Um, obviously, I—I I didn't do it. I mean, I, I was so so high, high. I didn't really get to the right zoo. Yeah. When you say high, I mean just you know fe- feeling very elated. Okay, yeah. So you
3: weren't like on medication or taking drugs. I was
2: on. I was on. Um, you were mood, on mood stabilizers for bipolar. Okay. Um, so you were legally high. Yeah, because like in the last, uh, say, 18 years, I've kind of had a bit more of a life. Um, I've had GPs who say to me, this is your diagnosis, but I'm going to give you the one of um, uh, psychotic depression. Because if I give you, if you have schizophrenia, you won't be able to do a lot of things, you know, work wise. If you had to declare it, you know, you wouldn't be able to drive and stuff like that. So they, they said it doesn't matter, you know, it's the same treatment. So we, we, we'll we give you that diagnosis so your life is easier. And I'm thankful for that actually. Right. Yeah.
3: So in the end you were given, just to recap, um, psychotic depression. Yes. Bipolar. Yeah. What was the other schizophrenia, one? Schizophrenia.
2: Schizophrenia. Paranoid schizophrenia. right And back to um, psychotic depression.
3: Right, so that was sort of four. yeah And I'm not even gonna ask you what the difference is between all of those, because we'll probably be here all day. But in your view, if you take all the labels and the diagnoses away, how would you sort of sum it up?
2: And I, I I would say, you know, I have just been so traumatized in my life that my mind and my emotions don't know how to handle it. And I need help, please. That's how, how simple I would have kept it, really. Mm. And it, it's, you know, I am so angry, not just for myself, but for... The thousands of people or even millions of people who are fobbed off who've gone through trauma and are, and and their trauma hasn't been addressed and they end up in the ground through suicide or um, or they become homeless or they end up in jail they have been let down um because i think society is just too scared to to deal with you know traumatized children mm. you know
3: and what do you say to people? Cause you know, with all the training that we do at One Small Thing with trauma and seeing trauma through a gender lens, which I think is also important that we'll get onto in a minute, actually that bit. But um, a lot of people kind of go, we, we don't wanna ask, it. you know, you don't wanna open that can of worms. What would you say to that? Because it feels like there's a fear of people asking Mm. Like, you know, I would feel very inappropriate asking you about your sort of deepest fears and worries and the things that had really happened to you in sort of graphic detail. And maybe mm. I'm not qualified to be able to ask those questions, but I think there's a fear there. So what would you say to that? Well, it's how
2: you, how you ask that thing, how you say it really. And I, mean, and I think the only qualifications you need to have is, is, is to be human and kind and listen um so i you know i would say to people, not you know I, mean, I do work with people who um have been traumatized in their life and i i usually say to people and i i would develop a you know a, a rapport and a connection first i wouldn't just live straight in so oh, i heard you've been raped would you tell me about yeah. it you know oh by the way my name is dolly you know i wouldn't yeah. do it that way um i i would say you know, I. Uh, Because I've gone through similar stuff, I would say, um, you know, the the, the distress you feel, is it to do with about something that's happened to you? Um, And if you want to talk about it and how much you want to talk about it, I'm happy to listen because I've been through similar. I haven't been through what you've gone through, but I've been through similar. Um, And maybe we can work together to find ways forward. Mm. Uh, it's something simple as that yeah. how hard is
3: that to say because I'm just reflecting on yeah. um that moment when you said when you first saw the first psychiatrist when you were 14 yeah and you were ready to talk and you were so desperate yes to speak and I think you know through my work I what I hear so much is that when there aren't the psychiatrists and psychologists in the medical world around and a lot of people who are in prison they just say the power of being able to talk and to be able to release and let go and it is just that power mm. of kind of unburdening yourself and and telling another person. But mm. it's almost like that seems too simple. And people can't believe that. That would be so powerful. So do you do you agree that?
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, um, my l- kind of last work as a researcher is asking young people who've experienced psychosis or well, their life stories and it's not that hard to do. It's to ask people for their life stories and talk about what what's important to to them and what what's happened to them. Um, and you know, we've not had any problems with people. They they have wanted to do it. They have been desperate to do it. Um, they want their story heard instead of being taken into a room where they you know their story is is smothered. Really. And labels are put there in 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 place. So we we were, you know we interviewed some a load of young people with uh, psychosis, and they said this is the first time being able to talk about what's happened, mm. and that shouldn't be the way. It shouldn't be you know like five years down the line, three years down the line, or even fifty years down the line for some people.
3: So do you think diagnoses are, cause some people say they're helpful. Some people go, oh, I'm not crazy. I've got this thing and it's recognized mm. by the medical world. So mm. that makes some people feel better. Mm. And then other people find it really unhelpful because as you say, it labels you with all these things. Mm. And actually I imagine, I'm certainly no doctor. I should imagine there's lots of different types of schizophrenia. I'm sure like if you have 10 schizophrenic people in a room they all have different things going on, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not, but. Do you find the
2: diagnosis side of things helpful? Yeah, it's it's complicated because um thanks to the diagnosis I was able to have you know, you know, be have benefits, you know, um disabled benefits, because I you know, when I was at, at my unwellest, I couldn't work. So what was I supposed to do um with with regards to money? So having a diagon you know, we have a system um in this country where you only get support if you're diagnosed so yeah because i guess you're not in the system unless you are diagnosed yes exactly so how do you help people without a diagnosis that's a question to ask Mm. and i don't know the answer at the moment right
3: (laughs) um so what were the turning points for you where did things start getting or when did your mind sort of start becoming calmer and when did things if they
2: have um well i hit the age of 30 well just before my 30th birthday and i was thinking i can't carry on like this and if i'm going to wait for psychiatry to cure me i'm going to wait a long time and on my 30th birthday i said today i'm going to choose whether to live or die and i'm going to choose to actually live and i was you know i was a very shy quiet introverted person i thought you know i need to start talking to people so that's that was a simple first step was to begin to talk to people so i would you know, try to engage in conversation with old ladies at bus stops. And I really like old ladies at bus stops love to talk. So that was a really good <laughs> way of learning social skills. And they don't know yeah. they they've helped me, but they have. And kind of just going to coffee mornings and doing little bits of voluntary work. So those were the first steps. But it was the yeah, that decision. I mean I am, you know, my my mind's still chaotic and my emotions are really still painful, but I have to try and do something about my situation, and um, and it was at these coffee mornings, I met a my first publisher, who said, you know, send me some of your work, and I did. And that that kind of first first book published has, uh, started off a ball rolling that has not really stopped since.
3: What was the name of your first book, and what do you write about?
2: The book is called The World Is Full of Laughter, and I wrote wrote about the first yeah first thirty years of my life, so it's my childhood my experience of psychosis my um my um being in the mental health system and me deciding to to do something about my life really and why did
3: you call it the world is full of laughter when it doesn't sound like um basically because (laughs) my people
2: um well people said that you know i write write about some really painful stuff but i do it with humor yeah so that's partly the reason but um the, the second reason was my dad um, was a you know singer, musician, and actor. He always wanted to be a comedian, so it was. Um, you know, people always say, "Oh, it must be you know your house must be full of laughter all the time," and it wasn't. So it was a, mm-hmm. kind of a bit of an ironic title. Um, but you know, I do end the book with me laughing, so so maybe it is. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Are there any people that stand out to you throughout your life? Because, you know, you've done remarkably well and, you know, you've survived it all. And as you say on your 30th birthday, you decided to, you know, swim and not sink. Mm. So who are the people that you sort of remember? Who are the people that have really helped you along the way?
2: Well, there's been quite a few people and they really wouldn't recognize themselves as angels, but they have been. I mean, just the immediate one I can think of is this. This um aging hippie called Barry. I wanted to, um, who lives in Amsterdam and I wanted to I mean I was writing a lot of poetry, but I wanted to perform it, and he said, I'll give you a first opportunity. So i put I put on poetry readings. He says, Come over to Amsterdam and I'll give you your first performance slot. And, you know, I was very anxious. I went there it was my first trip abroad as well. And I, I went there, um, and it was my turn to read and he he said go on dolly i said i can't do it i've changed my mind uh my hands were literally shaking the paper was like this and i'm not a skinny person as you can tell he lifted me and threw me onto the stage (laughs) (laughs) and um um and really helped healthy anxiety levels (laughs) (laughs) i would have liked a more graceful entrance but (laughs) So uh, you know, i I could either crawl crawled off or carried on crawling to the mic. So I crawled to the mic and read my my poem and actually I mean there is a high with regards to performing and I felt that high and I said, Oh, it's quite nice. Um so and it's yeah, it's, it's people like that who who just want you want you to to have, you know, a as beautiful life as can be and it's it's people's kindness. I mean it's it's even like when you're crying at a bus stop and somebody's sitting next to you to talk to you. It, mm. it, and I do you know, people aren't aware that they they they've done things to to save many people's lives. I mean I I um I've been told I have a face people talk to. So when I, I travel to London a lot on the train and people tell me, usually about their mental health, um, you know, their 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 stories and um And I thought, yeah, I'm just giving back what people have done to me, you know, previously. Um, Lots of interesting people with amazing stories, but usually unheard.
3: Yeah. And um, particular doctors that stand out are the sort of ones that you really think they got me. Um, You know, they addressed the trauma that I was suffering. I suppose I'm trying to search around for anything in the services that you came across that were really good and outstanding. Okay, They might not exist, but. In I didn't have experience. a I didn't
2: have a psychiatrist that ever talked to me about trauma, but I did have a psychiatrist that was supportive, and he, um, despite being on medication for over twenty years, he I was asking for talking therapy, and he arranged talking therapy for me. So that was a, a step in the right direction. But um, my actually my last therapist before I moved out of London in South London was amazing. I had had CBT, but the problem with CBT is that. It teaches you to swim when you're having difficult emotions or thoughts, um, but I don't want to keep having been pushed into the river all the time. Um, yeah. So I wanted to kind of tackle the root, which is the trauma. Um, and that's cognitive behavioural therapy, yes, CBT. Yeah. Anyway, she wasn't. She was an amazing therapist, and um, I don't know if you can see this tattoo I have. It's of a sheep. She on I, the sheep. Yeah. No, not no. Sean. It's Seamus. <laughs> Seamus. Yeah. Um, an Irish sheep. She got me talking um, and she, she said, what kind of things do you like? And I was telling her why I love sheep, uh, well, I love all animals. But um, she kind of created, you know, they talk about personalising therapy, but she created help, help My Inner Sheep therapy and she turned my voices into sheep. So the, the paranoid voices, the ones that were persecutory, became the black sheep the stuff where i i felt sometimes I'm, i i this and i'm not connect, i'm not connected to the word became my lost sheep and there was a, a healthy sheep and that basically it was learning how to shepherd those sheep and uh and I, she she really changed changed uh, the way i looked at my voices and stuff like that and um the way i looked at myself and realized you know you, if the sheep are not put out onto green pastures and are treated badly and not fed and, you know, put left on a hill and stuff like that, you know, they're not going to know how to be sheep. And she kind of taught me how to be a sheep.
3: I suppose, I imagine that's, it's so much about loss of control isn't it and actually you are the one who is the shepherd yes and you do have control over yes. those sheep you yes. just need to know how to corral them and yes. look after them and yes yeah
2: so it's, it's learning to look after parts of myself basically which is what it is really
3: so you say you still hear voices yes and do you still have the hallucinations yes how often
2: um well the voices usually it's mostly every day but it's only for like a few minutes at a time um usually when i find i find when i'm depressed they're they're quite they're more present Mm. and um more um abusive but i've just learned you know sometimes when you sit on a bus you can't choose who's sitting next to you um and they could be talking i mean it's a I don't know what you think about Brexit, Edwina. Let's not get into <laughs> that right now. But I've like had if people... I could do schizophrenia, <laughs> well, I can't say Brexit. Well, I've sat next to people who've talked about Brexit, you know, and now I I, I, just, I also would like to punch them in the face, but I won't. <laughs> and um, so I, it's, it's learning how to, how to sit with a difficult passenger, fellow passenger. And that's what I, I, I've i done. Yeah, so I, I can cope with my voices better than Brexit. like. You know. <laughs>
3: Oh God! You're going to getting, be getting Brexity voices. They might overtake your demons. Uh, well, I, I, I have Brexity voices in my head. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm. I, see a
2: doctor. Yeah. I, I, I. I oh.
3: No, let's not go there. Okay, let not. But I have a question about um, the services again that you are getting. I keep coming back to the services because I think there's so much happening in this space at the minute with people recognizing that trauma is something that can't be ignored. And we ignore it at our own peril because if we have services that don't address it, then we're doing it wrong. But the other side of things is um, services that are geared up for women compared to services that are geared up for men and Mm -hmm. services that are actually appropriate for children and not written for adults yes so how much do you feel because you know the abuse that you suffered you know of course men and women suffer abuse but do you feel that the fact that you were and you are a woman and your identity did that come into it was that sort of talked about was that explored or did you feel it was a bit generic
2: that's a bit a complicated thing to look at because um I realised, you yeah, know, even with my, my, my this last lovely therapist, I kind of, the, the gender stuff wasn't really looked into, but I, I can see, like, treatment-wise, how it was such an important thing to be looked at. I mean, for example, that first hospital stay I stayed at was a, a mixed ward, um, and I was sexually assaulted on that ward. And, um, have you know, you can't treat... Someone who's who's having difficulties through trauma but getting more trauma, mm.
3: um,
2: and stuff. For example, you can't be a mouthy woman and can't say you, you're treating me badly without having the the danger of being labelled with a, a personality disorder. That's one thing women who are in the mental health system have to be. You know, they do worry about. They either accept their lot, accept being treated badly. Or or if they make um, a bit of a fuss or stand up for themselves, oh, they bec- they obviously have a personality disorder. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. that's a that very common
3: thing that's happening. So what about your family? You said you're the eldest of five and where are you at with siblings and parents today?
2: Okay, well, um, I'm very close to all my siblings and little sproglets they've produced, which are lovely, <laughs> I mean... I absolutely adore my nieces and nephews um, and it's yeah it's i mean we're all at different levels with regards to our our past you know my dad passed away for a couple of months ago and actually the funeral was really hard to be at because i had my two sisters who were kind of t- um, giving the eulogy saying that oh, what a wonderful dad he was and stuff like that and my brothers crying because that wasn't the case and i was in the in the middle, I was crying for my dad, but I was crying for the dad he wasn't as well. And we do love each other deeply, but we really don't talk about the past. And I think because we're all in different places, and if we kind of delve too deeply into it, it, it would splinter the family. So we don't. We just enjoy our life now, and have we just have loads of elephants in the room with us, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, still close to my mum. I see her, you know, every few... Few months because we're in different um, cities now, um, and yeah, like I said, I don't talk to her, my past with her either because she's in a bit of denial of things that have 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 happened, uh, and yeah, now, yeah, I hold some anger around stuff like that, but um, I understand that's you know we're all human beings, we've all got our reasons, so. I try not to judge my mum for that, but some days I'm okay with it and some days I'm not. Mm. Mm.
3: And I'm looking at your beautiful tattoos that you have, not just Sean or Seamus the sheep, (laughs) but um, I also noticed that you have some scars. Do you mind me asking... Um, about self-harm because I think it's something that comes up a lot obviously um, we come across it a lot particularly in the women's prisons Um, and when you maybe started doing it and why because I hear all sorts of views on why people do it but Mm. um, I'd be interested to get your take on why you did it and how you
2: stopped. Um, I think I was around about either my late teens or early 20s when I Actually, I um, I can't remember what was the, the why I did it for the first time, but I, what I do remember was that it helped um, kind of de- de- detract from uh, the overwhelm that I was feeling. Kind of, you know, it's it's like being a, a um, being inside a really over overflated inflated balloon, and when you so you cut that, it, it deflates a little bit. That's the sense i ha- I had I don't know where I got the idea Oh, from like a do... pressure like yeah a release of yeah. pressure yeah and um i i I think I did it on and off for a couple of years but actually it was getting to the point where it was gonna it, you know just cutting wasn't enough and I was thinking you know and this is i'm sorry it's a bit graphic but I was thinking of stuff like gouging my eyes out and doing really brutal stuff to myself and I thought i thought no I can't do this and I just literally just stopped. Um, it wasn't an ad- addictive thing for me because the, the times I did it was quite spaced out in between. So it didn't it didn't have that kind of compulsive element to it. But yeah. Um, I yeah, I just I just I just stopped it. Basically, I, I, I wrote in my book that, that you know self-harm didn't go deep enough to, you know, to stop the pain. So I just kind of went through that other avenues and stuff
3: yeah and when you look at this sort of you know well you look back over your life and and how things have panned out for you how would you if you could have that magic oh that magic wand that I talk about a lot um how would you like to see sort of services provided I mean I know it's a big question but Mm. sort of you know if there was a little dolly sort of growing up and Mm. of course there's children in your position now who Mm. might not be getting um the sort of the care that they need the listening ear the Mm. the ability to speak Mm. how would you like to redesign things
2: well it'll be starting off with a question and you've got the question on your website i think saying you know instead of what's wrong with you what's happened to you and everything should start from that that viewpoint um and the kind of systems around it, and it it, it does involve it, uh, you know, education. It does involve the criminal justice system. It involves actually the whole of society. Um, that how do we stop these things from happening to you? And it you know, if it's caused distress, to to be to listen and and, and validate, and tell that young child or person, I'm going to be here to try and stop the, these things from happening to you and to help you um, heal from the hurt you do have. And I'm not gonna walk, run away from that hurt, I understand, they're beside you with your hurt. I think that would be really valuable to hear. And that's what I would have wanted to hear. So if listeners
3: are um, sort of interested in this podcast and want to know more about you and your work and your poems and all the stuff that you do, and where, where can they go, how can they learn more?
2: Um, I've got a website, which is dollysen.com. Dolly, D-O-L-L-Y-S-E-N. S-E-N, yeah. Um, I also write a blog for Disability Arts Online, um, which actually talks a, a lot about trauma and mental health, but also how you can kind of reclaim yourself back. I talk a lot about that. I also, at the end of the year, I'm curating a, a, an art show at Bethlehem Gallery, Um on mental health art and protest and it's basically the art of people who've been in the system and the ways they've um, used art to protest and ask for change so that's what I've been up to uh, recently
3: Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice If you found it interesting you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website onesmallthing.org. UK. One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news! Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.